gospel grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's my sermon title up there on the, on the screen there. I had to get that one in very early on account of my family and I going on vacation, as you guys know. So it's the first time I've ever put in a sermon title that far ahead. Three weeks. It was a record. I was kind of proud of myself for getting it in, too. Only when I turned in the sermon title into our secretary, Linda, it was a very busy VBS week for both of us, even more so for her. But on that last day of VBS, I also had a lovely wedding to do that same night. That day was a rehearsal. That night was the actual wedding. So we got all that done. I turned in my sermon title. I got it. I got packed to head overseas, by the way, only to be separated by my luggage for the first three or four days, unfortunately. But that's a different story for another time. Now, there's something more, though, about our vacation that I wanted to share with you, because there I do see a tie-in with our lessons today. Our flight. Our flight from Heathrow Airport in London was really uneventful. It was not bad, except for the stiff back that you get in the, in the leg cramps for an 11-hour journey. But it's our flight in contrast with that other flight, that flight from Hades that you may have heard about this past week. And I didn't say flight from Haiti. I said flight from Hades, if you know what I'm trying to say there. Delta Flight 555 from Las Vegas to Atlanta, I believe. And that never got off the ground. Instead of Flight 555, I think they had better called it Flight 666. And those poor folks. The flight crew on the tarmac at the time when they were sailing, saying to all the boarded passengers that day that there was just a short delay, something minor that they needed to fix. But with triple-digit temperatures outside the plane in Las Vegas there, passengers reported not sensing any air conditioning working for them. After sitting and sweating, those who endured the whole three-hour ordeal, they were finally told to just get off and the airline will pay for a hotel and a later flight. But some people couldn't any longer control their nausea. Others had to be wheeled off to urgent care. It was a veritable flight from Hades. Although after all they endured, they never actually achieved flight. That fiery furnace story, so to speak, came to my attention along with all the other disconcerting news that I needed to catch up on after being on holiday, as the Brits like to call it, on holiday under a cool blanket of fog, both literally and figuratively, as far as being oblivious to the wacky weather extremes going on here now that I've heard so much about in the United States. Fires, floods in the northeastern states, heat waves, and now they're calling it heat domes, another new and unpleasant weather word applied now to most of our southwestern states. Fortunately, here in Ventura County, we're spoiled, aren't we? We haven't had it so bad yet. But now I go back to our Bible texts for today, in particular our Romans reading. And I think, is this not Romans 8 that we are experiencing right now? Listen to this. All creation groaning to be set free from its bondage to decay. Verse 20 in our Romans reading says, Creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And that would be the first man, Adam, the first man and a woman, rather, in the garden, the ones who brought down the curse of their fall from grace upon all the good creation, upon paradise. They had paradise, probably in what is now the hot deserts near Baghdad. What a fall it was from lush, fruitful orchards, emerald isle-like pastures of bright green to something akin now to our own Death Valley. Now this month, winning the title of hottest record temperature ever on the planet, 130 degrees. That's crazy. Something went wrong there as well. Now that one of the key players I was beginning to mention in this game of spoils was right there in Eden as well. And he gets mentioned in our gospel reading today too, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's go ahead and take a look at our gospel reading and observe more of this mess mentioned in a slightly different setting as Jesus relates to his hearers now the parable of the weeds. The setting here is not a garden, but a farmer's field. And the anticipated yield from this field are some nice bundles of healthy grain, a wheat harvest from good seed sown in good soil. That's the setting. A different setting, but more of the same reaction when, like so many stories that start off with a pleasant once upon a time-like beginning, they suddenly turn south upon the introduction of some villainous creature or villainous character that delights in destroying, stealing, and killing. Enter the enemy. The master in this story calls this culprit an enemy. What exactly did he do? Well, the servants of the master knew, at least after a while they figured it all out. Verse 26 says, while the master's men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds all appeared also. Apparently, this was a true-to-life thing that happened back then when Jesus was telling the story. It happened enough, in fact, that the Romans actually had a law against this specific practice of sabotaging your neighbor's crops with bad seeding secretly sown. Most commentators identify this particular bad seed with a weed known as bearded darnel. Some of you may have heard about that. I'm not a horticulturist myself. Bearded darnel, it even sounds like a villain's name, doesn't it? But it wasn't anybody nicknamed bearded darnel, nope. When Jesus' disciples returned home with him, having heard all those parables that he taught that day, they had some questions. And let me just say, If you have some questions, big questions I'm talking about, that have to do with life, death, and the kingdom of heaven, take those questions to where the disciples took theirs, to our gracious Lord and Master. Bring your questions like, why, Lord? Why have these things gone so wrong in my life? Why have they gone so wrong out in the world? You plant some honest-to-goodness wheat and life gives you weeds. Why do entire crops fail and our children become subject to starvation? 
or in today's geopolitical terms, why do entire humanitarian cargo vessels, ships full of grain, why do they get blown up right there in their own ports so that a food crisis results even in countries that don't choose sides? There are so many more big questions of hate and death and war. It's depressing. And it's even disorienting for younger generations, people who feel lost in a hostile world where evil seems to get the upper hand and just the total destruction is only one finger reach away. How can you learn your place in the sun when there is no sun shining in your life at all? It's all a misty gray, but with no bright green hills to show for it. Where is all this history taking us? Is this whole thing just on an endless rinse and repeat cycle? This parable, the parable of the weeds, at first glance doesn't seem so deep, but those roots go way down into the depths of philosophical inquiry from which some say there is no coming back up. It can bury you, and any semblance of faith in God that you may be yet clinging to, if you are not careful and prayerful, you may lose that. And this is this has a title for what I'm talking about here. These philosophical questions about God, about evil. It's called theodicy. Some of you may have heard that term, but it's better known as the problem of evil. This problem, often cited by atheists to justify their being atheistic, or sadly it's used sometimes to justify their becoming an atheist after being raised in a Christian home of some sort. And the problem goes like this. If there is a good God, why is there evil in the world? Right? Either God is not purely good and he allows evil to prosper, or God is good, but he's not all-powerful. He can't do anything about that evil. He cannot conquer it, even if he wanted to, out of his goodness. So those are the horns of, the, of a dilemma that prospective atheists find themselves on. It's simply stated, and chances are you've heard this problem of evil argument expressed to you in one form or another. Perhaps you've even struggled with it yourself, wondering where you could go to best wrestle through such a deep question. Well, Jesus' disciples heard this parable of the weeds, and it struck them deep enough to want to follow up with their master as soon as they reached the privacy of their home. Was it the part about the weeds being bound and burned inside the fiery furnace that stuck with them, you think? Was it fear getting the best of them? Or did they just not get how good seed sown on good soil could come up bad? Maybe they just said, it just doesn't make sense. Thankfully, Jesus explains the parable starting in verse 37 of our gospel lesson. And his answer to the problem of evil is quite short, clear, and maybe even a bit dissatisfying for some. We'll get to it in the same order in which Jesus gets to it. First, though, Jesus explains the sower is who? The son of man. The son of man, which is a favorite title in Matthew's gospel that Jesus uses for himself. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. Next, the field. It's not the church, as some people might think. 
The Lord says the field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And here it is, verse 39, the enemy, you guessed, it's the devil. No surprise there. It's he who is stirring things up as he did from the very beginning. Why did God even make him? Well, Scripture doesn't say, but God did make him good, originally good, that is. What may come up as some surprise for the deep philosophers among us, or maybe even for those in the world that you encounter, is this straightforward answer that Jesus gives on all of this, but especially with regard to the devil as simply the enemy. And we all know about enemies. Elsewhere, Jesus calls the devil a thief. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, destroy. The devil doesn't create. He can't create anything. He can only spoil or destroy, and that's what he tries to do. Luther put it this way, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel so he can be there and influence and corrupt. So he sneaks out at night and sows weeds to try and destroy the sowers, that is, the son of man's good seed that were sown. That title, the son of man, is what I like to refer to a clickable link. That is, if you were reading this on a web page, you'd want to click that title, Son of Man, to see where it's coming from, what's its background. And the answer is from Daniel, the prophet. Daniel is God's prophet in exile for God to speak in Daniel's dreams and for God to speak to the authorities in Babylon through Daniel. That was one monumental miracle, which is probably a little redundant in the expression, but it's monumental because here is Daniel the prophet along with the whole nation of Judah transplanted in Babylon a long way away from the Jerusalem temple there they were in exile now this coincidentally was our VBS theme this year exile in Babylon some of you remember that many of you helped us out and I've been kidding around a little bit that for our traditional service people the church sanctuary is kind of like your temple from which you are in exile, so to speak, but not as Judah was for 70 years, of course. Thankfully, your exile, I was hoping would only be seven weeks to correspond better with the 70 years, but that OCD wish of mine probably isn't going to come true. I don't think it's going to pan out. But what does prove true, more importantly, is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That is, the Lord speaks to his prophets wherever they may be, not just at the temple back in Jerusalem. And it could be on account of war, imprisonment, migration, or it could be like Abraham, who's just answering God's call to go. The Lord, by his spirit, still speaks. For us today, the Lord still speaks to us, his spirit working through his word and the sacraments. Even here, in our fellowship hall, all our contemporary service people already knew that. They're kind of hosting us. And what is the Spirit telling us now through his word? The Spirit records in Daniel chapter 7, one of the few Old Testament passages that talk about the kingdom of heaven and the Son of Man. Here it is, Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, the Son of Man, is given dominion over the devil and over the entire earth. The gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. On his cross, Jesus, the sinless Son of Man and the Son of God, paid the penalty for all your sins and mine in full. Now, in Jesus, all is made new. As Paul says in Romans 8, Now we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, glorified bodies, fit for a new heaven and a new earth, paradise restored. Our God is going to roll up all the evil in this old world and throw it away, toss it like bad trash, and it doesn't make it into the next world. No litter in paradise restored. Restored and restricted. No talking snakes either. No devil or demons. But come, ye sinners. Hear your risen and ascended Lord cry out with the invitation. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have life more abundantly in my name. You and I can take heart in that. Maybe I got there. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on that day of Christ Jesus. Amen.